0: everybody welcome to secondhand stories i'm your host jim zabo hope you didn't miss us too much while we were gone but we're back and ready to go our episode today is devoted to people who don't like their jobs so if you know anybody like that these stories should help or something our first story autotune by jesse Mardian, is about someone who realizes that their profession is not what it once was and maybe they aren't what they once were either Jesse Martin earned his MFA degree at San Jose State University. His recent works have been featured in Mount Hope Magazine, Gambling the Isle, The Rumpus, and Three, an anthology of flash nonfiction. Currently, he's working on his first novel and working as an educator in Los Angeles, California. When Haskell arrived at the Hillside Manor, a purple gloom hung over the city of Los Angeles. It was one of those nights where the skyscraper lights outshone the scant stars. He sat in his parked car, pulling from a copper flask, his eyes following the curving driveway lined with palm trees and tiny lampposts. All at once, the lamps beamed as if beckoning him to climb the path to the mansion above. The city backdrop, the artificial glow, and the slow burn of whiskey brought a shiver along his spine. With his guitar case in hand, he trekked up the driveway until he stood before a gate guarded by twin ceramic lions. He patted his jacket pocket, making sure the bag of marching dust was still there, safe. It was. He suppressed the fiery burp and activated the intercom. Mr. John Heskell for Sir Oliver Hemsworth, he said mockingly. As he awaited a response, he peered over his shoulder at the dented car below. Tread-worn tires, headlight askew, exhaust pipe nearly dragging, a pine tree air freshener faded and scentless, and the torn upholstery lined with empty soda cans and dozens of frayed paperbacks. Haskell's vehicle tarnished the lush background of manicured landscapes and multi-million dollar homes. The gate buzzed and opened. Under the expanse of a white stucco archway stood the gangly frame of Hemsworth, attired in a tight crew neck and cargo shorts. His hair was much different than Haskell remembered, clipped above the ears with neatly trimmed sideburns, as if measured by a barber with an obsession for symmetry. His face, untarnished by time, was still boyish, without wrinkles or stubble. Well, if it isn't the one and only John Haskell, he said, opening his arms like a prophet. The cliche evoked an internal shudder within Haskell as he climbed several steps. The difference in position, Hemsworth above, Haskell below, made any embrace awkward, so Haskell instead shook his old friend's hand. Even his palms felt as if they hadn't aged, smooth and without calluses. He wondered if Oliver even played the drums anymore. A little different from the apartment off Venice, Haskell said, releasing his hand and looking up at the adobe shingles. You think? It's so great that you're here, man, Hemsworth said, leading him into the foyer. God, it's been years. What's new? Heard he got a residency at the Griffin Room. Just like his car, Haskell found himself an intruder among the pearly walls and Talavera tiles. He'd hardly heard what Hemsworth had said. What's that? Oh, yeah, we did. Ended in May, he said, picturing the sparse crowds at the Griff, lazily swaying to his empty songs. He could have heard a dime drop. But the money wasn't bad. Just enough to stay afloat. I must admit, Hemsworth went on, when I called you, I thought you'd never take the gig. You know, not your style at all, but when I got this project, you immediately came to mind. The producers wanted something raw, and when I told them about you, they were thrilled. Haskell was hardly listening, too absorbed in the dozens of obscure paintings that hung on the walls. Splatters, abstracts, haunting expressionist faces melting into a whirlpool of colors. They all evoked some impending doom. Ain't these a trip, said Hemsworth, from some dude in Barcelona named Candazar, or Cantazar? Guess it doesn't matter. Had my agent get his recent collection. Kind of reminds me of Dali. A little risque, I know, but man, visceral. Haskell admired the paintings, enjoying the dread they induced. He'd always believed that good art wasn't just pretty. They moved on down the hall to another vast collection of artworks, trip paintings, dozens of them. Canvases splattered as if the artist, lazy and uninspired, just flicked his brush and said, voila. I love these even more, Hemsworth went on. I could look at them for hours, just wondering what the artist was trying to convey. Haskell paused and gazed at a black inked splatter, trying to visualize anything, but all he could see was shit. Well, I guess it depends on whether you think art is subjective or objective, he said, turning away from the wall. Before Hemsworth could reply, Haskell said, So where's this state-of-the-art recording studio you told me about? Heading down a flight of stairs, Haskell followed Hemsworth into what appeared to be a basement. A single light illuminated the dark staircase as they came to a red door, which opened up into the recording studio. Through glass windows, Haskell noticed an isolation booth set up with microphones, guitars, and keyboards. In the control room, an older man wearing a gray blazer and a woman with blonde hair stood beside a boy of about 12 who was moving switches on the mixer. Paused on the screen of a looming monitor was a cartoon, The Animated Adventure, the reason for Haskell's presence. Surveying the room, Haskell took immediate notice of the boy's style. Baggy pants, loss of jewelry, an oversized shirt portraying a famous dead rap star holding a goblet. He had heard the boy's name on the radio once or twice. Just another rising star in a city with too many. The old man was the first to acknowledge Haskell, his bushy eyebrows rising as he extended a delicate hand. Well, I'll be damned, he said. Marty Silver, manager. It's great to meet you. Back in the day, I was a huge fan. I mean, I still am. I know lots of people in the industry whose mouths are watering at the prospect of an apologist's reunion. But that's between you and Oliver, and the rest of the band, I suppose. Anyway. Lotus is always in my queue. What a magnificent song. Powerful stuff. I appreciate it, Haskell said, again cringing inside. The woman turned and looked at Haskell. She was obviously the boy's mother, for they shared the same delicate features. Fair-haired, fair-skinned, bony-faced. She was less friendly, shaking Haskell's hand weakly and barely making eye contact. She half-smiled at Haskell and said, I remember the apologists." Who could forget Lotus? Of course she remembered, Haskell thought. No one ever forgot a one-hit wonder. Why in the hell did people even like it? Three chords over and over, lyrics so bland that he got cottonmouth every time he sang it. And of course, all those fans. He could see them now, in their jeans and flannel, bobbing their heads, singing along, misinterpreting the song's meaning, only believing it was about some stilted romance he suffered from. The tune was about much more than that. Sure, love was a part of it, fleeting and built to spill, but he had intended for the lyrics to be malleable and projective. Even he didn't know what the song truly meant. The best lyrics flowed from the subconscious, he thought. Of course, one can't overlook Oliver's touch on a song like that, Silver said, wringing his hands together. Masterful. Well, actually, Marty, you know, John wrote everything for that song, Hemsworth said, rubbing his neck. I was basically a drum machine. Haskell glanced over at the boy who was still playing around with the mixer. He sat, swiveling on a red leather chair, headphones rested around his thin neck. His one earring shimmered under the studio lights. Oh, how dreadfully rude of me! Silver said, walking over to the boy and placing his hands on his shoulders. I'm sure he needs no introduction, but the grunge era precedes him, which is a crazy thing to think about. Too long. How old we are getting, anyways, Mr. Haskell. This is Richie King. The boy turned from the mixer and gave Haskell a quick glance. Don't treat me like a kid, Mart. I know the song, Lotus. Do you think I'm an idiot? They still play now and then on the oldie station my mom listens to. And I think little Debbie did a remix of it a while back. No offense, Mr. Haskell, but that song's boring and simple and I just can't relate to it. That makes two of us, Haskell said. Manners, Mrs. King blurted. A silence lingered as the boy returned to moving the knobs. Haskell looked up at the monitor where an animated adolescent superhero stood atop a skyscraper, looking down on a rain-soaked metropolis. The pixelated face grinned with confidence. Haskell imagined the marketing. Toys, video games, cereal, songs. And he was just a cog in it all, part of the Hollywood money-making machine. Brilliant, eh? Amsworth said, joining Haskell's side and nodding at the monitor. It's going to be huge in the box office. They'd wanted to produce the music in a big studio in Beverly Hills, but being tight with the director, I pleaded that he make the music supervisor let me make the call. I can get the same sound here anyway. But you probably don't care about all the Hollywood logistics, right? I'm sure you're itching to get started, so let's take care of a bit of business first. At an oval table behind the control station, several papers were neatly laid. Silver and Mrs. King watched from aside as Haskell scrutinized the paperwork. He scanned the legal jargon with distaste, finding it convoluted. I'm sure you're all too familiar with this process, Mr. Haskell, Silver laughed, exposing several gold fillings. You were on Geffen back in the day? Or was it Warner? Geffen. Of course he knows, Hemsworth interrupted. Just an informal agreement that all songwriting credits go to Richie. Just like we talked about on the phone, John. Meanwhile, King just swiveled. I don't know, I might have to confer with my lawyers, Haskell joked, taking the pen in his hand and signing the line. The ink bled onto his finger, and as much as he tried to wipe it off, it remained. A reminder. Need to use the privy, Haskell said, patting silver on the back. Following the pointing hand of Hemsworth, Haskell made his way to the back of the studio, where he found a lemon-scented bathroom nearly as big as his apartment. He shut the door behind him and took out the flask, draining its contents down his throat. He savored the burn, feeling it trickle slowly into his chest and down into his stomach. Yet, alcohol only numbed envy. Drink couldn't submerge the fact that he was a subject of charity. But what was wrong with that? From his pocket, he pulled a baggie, delicately pouring a small mound on the marble counter. This is how the world works. We all rely on the fortunes of others. Using his guitar pick, he divided the powder into even lines. There has to be a pyramid, few who stand atop the many who support the foundation. He snorted a trail. And that's what he was, a part of the many who supported the top. Another snort, tickle, and burn. If he just accepted the chain of power, maybe he could slowly climb his way up. Licking his finger, he suctioned what was left of the marching dust off the counter and rubbed his gums. That's what he'd do, like a bottom feeder gone rogue. Straight to the top. He checked himself in the mirror, waiting for the red around his nostrils to fade. Washing his hands and dabbing some air freshener on his neck, Haskell left the bathroom. Shall we, gentlemen? Hemsworth said, opening the door into the isolation room. King entered, and as Haskell followed, a long arm stopped him. He met the stern eyes of Hemsworth. You good? Hemsworth asked. Like a superhero, Haskell replied, but the arm still blocked his way. What, you don't get it? Because of the cartoon and all? Man, that's a kid in there, and you smell like a can of Lysol and a barrel of whiskey. Are we going to have a problem? I am sure I can handle a pop song written by a machine, Oliver. He could feel the confidence surging in him now, a beast of energy growing from within. Anything was possible now. Behind them, Silver watched with the keen eyes of a manager. Hemsworth pulled out a packet of gum, shaking his head as he handed it over. This is a great gig, John. Remember that. Everything cherry, boys? Silver called out. Yep, perfect, Haskell said, taking the gum and pushing through the arm of Femsworth. Just like old times, Silver, Oliver here always holding it all together. Centered in the room, King adjusted a microphone and its pop filter. Beside him, a jet-black Martin acoustic leaned against the stand. Haskell admired its smooth neck and body, but after giving it a couple strums, he set it aside and grabbed his Gibson. The guitar was a reflection of the man who played it. Dented cap stands, unclipped strings askew, bridge splintered, wood scraped body covered with stickers, and withered by pick drums. Haskell put on a pair of headphones and positioned the guitar's sound hole next to a condenser mic. He played a couple of erratic bar chords, producing the twangy sound he loved. King placed his headphones on, and Haskell listened as the boy went through his vocal warm-up. The boy's tenor was breathy and girlish, a harsh contrast to Haskell's heavy-handed rhythms. The two went through their sound check like novice dancers stepping on each other's toes. Every time Haskell tried to match the key, the boy went higher. Through the glass window, Mrs. King stared. She looked the type who did Pilates on weeknights, Haskell thought. Too many women were like that nowadays, trying to look younger than they were. A farce. She flipped her hair as she spoke to Hemsworth and Silver. When Haskell realized he couldn't read their lips, he turned to the boy, who was still working on his tenor. How about we go one time through, Haskell said, tuning his guitar. I'm known for getting things done in a take or two. The song was utter crap. Hemsworth had sent it over weeks prior, making sure Haskell was prepared for the recording session. It wasn't the simplicity that irked Haskell. Rather, it was the uppity chord progression and the cliche lyrics. Apparently, the tune had been written by some hotshot Hollywood ghostwriter. Both a Grammy and Emmy winner, Hemsworth had claimed. We must fight, the boy sang. Fight for what we believe in. Fight for the good so the bad is forgotten. Oh god, Haskell let out, feeling almost filthy. Operating from ground control, Hemsworth spoke, his voice resounding through the headphones. Hold off, boys. Something isn't right. Haskell stopped and put his pick in his back pocket. Richie, how's the throat? Mrs. King's voice interrupted. Can I get you tea? The herbal kind you like. I also got pumpernickel spice or oolong. The boy rubbed his throat and croaked. The key is all wrong. Whatever key works, boy Haskell said, incessantly tapping his pick on the Gibson's body. Haskell met the woman's mascara bordered eyes and saw her countenance change. Quickly, she jumped from her chair and raced out of the control room. Soon she reappeared with a mug, entering the isolation booth while dipping the tea bag. Here, honey, she cooed. Drink it slowly. As she passed, Haskell could smell her cosmetics, something sweetly citrus. Just another trick to hide her age, he thought. Amazing son he got here. Love his stuff. Truly do. Reminds me of myself. Hearing himself speak such desperate words was sickening. As she returned his gaze, he couldn't stop his mind from undressing her. Maybe he had had too much marching dust. The stuff always made him lascivious. There she stood, as naked as one of the portraits from upstairs. Quickly he erased the image, looking down at his own hands, thick and calloused from years as a slave to his instrument. I hope not, she said, winking as she rushed back into the isolation booth. They all waited as the boy drank his tea. Haskell air-strummed, keeping an imaginary beat with his feet. His mind raced with ideas on how to change the song. Inside the control room, the watchers waited. You done yet, Prince? Haskell asked. It's king, the boy said, clearing his throat and checking his range. All right, fellas, Hemsworth's voice entered. I'm going to click you in. You got this, Rich. We can do as many takes as it needs. No worries. No stress, okay? The first take went well. So did the second. The third was phenomenal. A slight hiccup on the fourth cracking voice on the 5th, a missed chord on the 6th and 7th. By the 10th, Haskell's heart was thumping. His impatience was growing into the 15th. By the 20th, he finally moved towards the boy's microphone. I think we have it, gentlemen, do we not? Haskell said, staring into the control room. He was sweating, and his lips were dry. The boy stood idly by, with his hands at his sides. Come on now, John, you know how this process works, Hemsworth said. These things take time. Even when we got it, we don't got it. But I guess we can take a break if you're tired. Let me just add that you sound great, Richie, Silver interrupted. You make me so proud, honey, his mother chimed. Haskell laughed and patted the boy on the back. A real Sinatra, he scoffed. The boy looked at him, doe-eyed and dumb. No on Sinatra? Maybe Justin Bieber or someone like that? In the control room, they all gathered around the master board. Above, the cartoon was paused on the hero character leaping off a skyscraper. Obviously the animations are in the preliminary stages, Hemsworth said, sitting before a computer. If you guys want, I can show you what we've got so far, but be warned, some of the characters are still wireframed. I'm heading to the John. I don't care much about cartoons, Haskell said, turning his back. Then he laughed. John goes to the John. There is the title of your hit song. Safe in the bathroom, Haskell retrieved the baggie, having forgotten it was empty. Wetting his fingers, he scrapped any remains of the marching dust and rubbed his gums. He shook out the flask and got a drop on his tongue. The whole thing was a stupid mess. Oolong. A boy should be outside, playing baseball or some crap. Not inside, plugged in, recorded. And the mother was a piece of work. Probably cheated on poor Richie's father, who was likely a business mogul of some sort. What a pity. What a farce. But the money. Remember the money. Rent, car, food, bills, repairs, debt, and marching dust. Just let Papa Hollywood take care of it. The three still stood with eyes transfixed on the monitor as Haskell returned. The cartoon was gone, and now the screen mirrored the editing interface of the computer. Hemsworth, clicking and moving clips and waves, looked like a mad scientist. Haskell was sure he was about to scream, It's alive! It's alive! So what I'm doing is processing some filler to Richie's vocals to make them full and warm, he was explaining. Apparently he didn't have to clarify to Silver, who was nodding his head in agreement. But, turning to Mrs. King, he said, All the pop stars are doing it nowadays. Check it out. The song began, and Haskell admired his steady rhythm and distinct tone. But soon the harmony was dashed as King's vocals drowned the music. The voice was robotic, synthesized, fake. And now we'll add the drums, Hemsworth said, dragging a file into the interface. A poppy beat emerged, with a snare like punching a hole in a box. Within Haskell, something crept. It began in the bowels, crawling along his intestines, up into his chest, where his heart thumped to reel. For a moment, it clung to the heavy cardiac drum, until moving north into his esophagus, finding a life within the windpipes, and finally materializing it to words. Murderous! he shouted slamming his fist onto the keyboard, halting the music. King's mother shrilled and stepped back as the others looked at Haskell wide-eyed, mouths agape. What in God's name? Silver erupted. Haskell could feel the blood boiling in his eyes. He couldn't contain the anger that was surfacing. This has to stop. It must stop, Haskell said. Take it off, Oliver. All of it. You're being highly irrational, the mother interjected. No one asked you. What do you know about music? Relax, Mr. Haskell. Remember you're speaking to a lady. And you, you are the worst of the worst, he said, pressing his finger to Silver's chest. A leech, you do nothing positive for music. Where's this coming from, John? You feeling all right? Hemsworth said. Oh, you would all like to know, so ignorant, all of you. What do you know about art? You know this is art, right? Not some mechanized production. You're high, aren't you? Hemsworth said. Oh, of course, you would go straight to that. No, I am not high, Oliver. I am enlightened. Through all of this, King cowered into his mother's arms, peering at Haskell as though he had come to snatch him away. Haskell felt a pang of guilt. Seeing him like that, but he was too into it now. And you, last of all, Haskell continued, pointing at the child. Open your eyes! Don't let them take advantage of you. Is this really what you want? Sheltered in some dark basement, singing words that are not your own? You are just a vessel for the monster, man. They'll use you, suck you dry, and then one day you'll be an adult and wonder where your life has gone. This business will kill you slowly. It has already started. Hemsworth must have found something comical as he began to laugh. Projecting much, John? Don't bring your own demons in here. I have to admit, I thought that this could happen, but I assumed you changed. I assume you had grown up and learned from your mistakes. Clearly, you still have problems that you need to deal with. He turned to Mrs. King in silver and said, "I am so sorry. I really hoped this would work out." You are not sorry about me, Haskell said, feeling his mood begin to change. The highs, the lows, the high, and the low. You are only sorry for yourself. I think it's time you go, Hemsworth said, standing between Haskell and the boy and his mother. This was a mistake, I should have known. I apologize again, Marty and Mrs. King. We can get someone else in here to finish the track. Oh. Oliver to the rescue, divine and courageous. Utter trash, all of it. Get your hands off of me. Hemsworth guided Haskell outside of the control room, showing him into the hallway, where he stumbled and fell. He shut the door behind them. You're disgusting, do you know that? Hemsworth said. You just never could get your act together, John. That's your problem. If you could have just played along, this is all a game. Adhere to some rules, submerge your opinions, stay sober. If it is money you want, you have to play the game. But no, you have to be high and mighty. You talk about art? Art is dead in this city. Now get out of here. Send me an invoice and I'll pay you for the time. But after that, I don't want to hear from you again. He opened the door and slammed it shut. Haskell picked himself up and headed up the stairs. His guitar was back in the isolation booth, but what did it matter now? Passing through the hall, he looked up at the expanse of artwork, scattered along the walls like trophies. For a moment, he pondered how everything became so awful. He wasn't sure if he hated himself or the people in the cave below. The black inked abstract that Hemsworth had found so magnificent caught Haskell's eye. He observed the interweaving splatters and tried to make sense of them. For a moment, he thought he saw something. The outline of a man on his knees, a tumultuous cloud above him but then it was gone, and nothing remained. He was outside and down the driveway before he realized what he had done. Mansions abound. Skyscraper lights beyond, a man-made constellation. He popped the trunk of his car and tossed the painting inside. Igniting the engine, Haskell idled for a moment. He glared at the Hemsworth's manor. The boiling anger from earlier subsided crawling back into the fissures of his body. Something else took its place as he began to cry uncontrollably. Of all the broken parts of his car, the radio still worked, the transmission fading in and out of the blown speakers. For a second, he thought he heard a familiar song, the three chords over and over, a young man singing words with no meaning, lyrics that no one really understood. But then again, it could have been any song now. Our second story today depicts two people in an unfortunate job, one that I hope they would never have to fulfill in real life, but something that I'm sure a lot of people are thinking about after recent events. It's titled Green Screen by Zach Goldberger, a human being who lives in Chicago, Illinois. Occasionally, he leaves his apartment. He works at a movie theater and spends his nights writing stories on his computer that never get endings. Often, they don't get middles. This story was inspired very slightly by the story of Stanislav Petrov, whose name he just had to Google because it's not one he really remembered. Basically, he saved the world from nuclear annihilation. It's about shitty jobs and mutually assured destruction. Please enjoy Green Screen. Any and all visitors to the room declared it one of the most boring rooms they'd ever encountered. It was a catalog of stainless steel chic, file cabinets, office chairs, no personal effects were to be seen, no family portraits or silly magnets. There were a few screens, most showing readings, measurements, the largest one flashing a green circle. A big green circle. Unassuming, mundane, and yet important. There was a button by that big green circle, locked behind a small door with two keyholes. It was just a dull black button, Not violent red like any old war movie would have you believe. In front of the button, on the desk's workspace, lay a scrabble board, mid-game. This was the room where the world would end. A woman sat to the left of the scrabble board, twirling a key attached to a string around her wrist. This was Michelle. A man sat to the right, running a discarded E through his fingers. This was Tony. He was careful not to let the tile clink against the key attached to his wrist. It was a private game he played as he spoke to his superiors on the desk phone. Unlike the button, the phone decided to adhere to the myths of popular culture. It was bleeding red, a stark contrast to the rest of the room. When the phone call was over, Michelle did not make eye contact with her partner. Just a false alarm, declared the man. The woman fixed her glasses. Well, I guess it's just another Tuesday in paradise. They should really fix those fucking radars. Next time a bird flies through, I'm just going to assume it's the Russians. Screw calling it in. Well, that's why we have protocol. Screw protocol. Sometimes I think you actually want to press the button. He winked at her. She smiled. She got the triple word score on dial, giving her 15 points. She gloated with a celebratory fist pump only to be bested by the word jinx. An argument ensued that lasted until lunch. There's no way a guy can get J and X in the same hand. He had to have cheated during the phone call. Michelle loved circles long before she had to stare at one for a living. When she was a girl, she ran around her house. She eventually moved up to roller skating around her cul-de-sac. And then she took a circular route around her neighborhood when she advanced to the bicycle. In high school, she ran track. People asked her why she loved running so much. She said it was so she could run in circles. They thought it was a joke. It wasn't. Circles were the purest form of meditation. She found strength in the 800 meter. She could turn everything on automatic. Her legs, her arms, her brain. For two and a half minutes, she didn't have to think. She didn't have to be. She just ran. Now her eyes were trained on a perfect circle every day, and it was boring. There was no movement involved, nothing to let her thoughts disappear. She remembered the first time something crossed the screen. She was hysterical. She was crying on the job, in front of this man, this person, who she had only just met. There was no cell reception in the room, so there was no way she could say farewell to her parents, her sister in Oklahoma, her friends, just some stranger named Tony. Two minutes later, after he picked up the red phone, they discovered it was just a flock of geese. He still made fun of her for crying that time, but she saw the bags on his face. She knew he didn't sleep either. That emotional outburst was a one-time deal. After that, she learned to grin and bear it. She'd had worse jobs, and it was better than being married, like her younger sister was. It was better than being in jail. It was better than making a shit salary. But she couldn't exactly talk to her therapist or her rabbi about the implications of the job much less her parents. The loneliness drained her. She was constantly seconds away from having blood on her hands. She knew people from high school who joined the military. She knew too many girls who loved boys who loved guns. They were all fascinated with the Second Amendment. They argued over the particulars of the heavy arms they used in Call of Duty. On weekends, they hunted. She never got it. She ate red meat, she liked professional wrestling, she watched Mark Wahlberg movies, but she'd always considered violence to be... dangerous. She felt like she lived in a world where violence was put on a pedestal, and everyone else bowed to that pedestal. And yet, here she was, standing atop that pedestal, with the key around her wrist, ready to unleash on the world. But that's all it was. A button and a key. It seemed almost harmless. It may have been the most advanced military defense system in the world, but Tony was really just looking at a green circle, blinking again and again. He was supposed to jump up and freak out, do his job, if anything entered that circle. They'd recently updated the sensors, which is why birds had been setting it off. His eyes started to roll back in his head. It honestly shouldn't have been such a bad job. He sat on his ass playing board games all day. He got great benefits. European-level vacation time, and in about three years, he would be all set for that big promotion. But he found himself unable to sleep at night. Here he was, a PhD in nuclear physics, and he spent 12 hours a day babysitting a button. His wife clamored for children, but who could be a father with these hours, this responsibility? They hadn't stopped having sex, or the occasional date night, but he didn't really talk to her anymore. Sure, he said things, but they were just meaningless things, sweet nothings, and occasionally a brief lie about his state of mind. After a day of doing nothing, how can one chase away that thought? What if he had to press the button? Tony was no stranger to mundane jobs. As an undergrad, he once spent a month staring at plants, waiting for them to wilt. When he was a graduate student, he completed spreadsheets, day in, day out. He hardly remembered what he had researched. All he remembered was the spreadsheets. And he was fine with that. He liked spreadsheets. They made sense. They were something to do. His friends told him he was anal. He preferred type A. He wanted to do big things. But when he was brought into that office, when they first told him what he'd be doing, they said it was a big thing. A big responsibility. They put him in this room because they trusted him. Tony appreciated the sentiment. He was flattered, in fact. And that made him want to succeed. Positive reinforcement always worked on him. But he didn't know it would mean staring at that soulless, blinking, green circle. Lunch was always quick. Michelle had a hastily made chicken salad sandwich, prepared in the rush between her shower and leaving for work. Tony also had a chicken salad sandwich, prepared the night before by his wife. It took Tony a total of 2 minutes and 14 seconds to finish the sandwich in his Diet Pepsi. He timed things. It gave him something to look at. Something less green. Something less ominous. Michelle dawdled, taking an extra 46 seconds. She was off today. He pulled out a deck of cards and shuffled them. He split the deck into two piles. She casually made a joke about pressing the button. She might have a dark sense of humor but not that dark. She was really off today. He doled out the piles, hoping she was okay. She won the first two games, but he came back to win three out of five. Where's a child's game anyway? Michelle said. The two stared at each other for a moment, then laughed. You ever seen Dr. Strangelove? She hadn't. She'd heard of it. She knew Tony considered himself a bit of a film buff. She hated that. I mean, I feel like it's required watching in this profession. Certain irony in it. She rolled her eyes. He was about to do it again. try to make an hours-long, one-sided argument about a stupid movie. God give her strength, she'd rather stare at the screen. If there was one thing more boring than this job, it was listening to Tony, amateur film critic. Why don't we just get a TV and we can watch it someday, she posited sarcastically. This would deflect the conversation. It worked. They had an hour and a half argument about whether or not a television would be a good addition to the room. They'd talked about it before. It wouldn't get cable down here. They could just get a DVD player. They had completely different tastes in movies. It would be noisy. What if they couldn't hear the phone? What if they were too distracted to notice something entering the circle? But they already had board games. Were those really less distracting? They certainly weren't the way Tony and Michelle played. His movie sucked. Her movie sucked. This again. That again. What if he picked up a box set of a television show? No way. She didn't want to watch X-Files. It won't be X-Files, he swore. But they had different tastes. By one thirty-four p.m., the room was silent. Michelle resorted to spinning in her chair. Another circle. The kind she liked. The kind of circle that moves with her. She decided to ignore Tony. She didn't care for him right now. She'd reached that part of the day. Tony spent 9 minutes and 32 seconds staring at the green blinking circle. Nothing changed. He was seething. Michelle knew he didn't like it when she spun in her chair. He couldn't place why. It was childish and annoying. Those were the reasons he had told her. But who's he to judge that? He tried so damn hard to be an adult. He was the senior occupant of the room. He got the job first, and he showed up first every morning. But literally the only difference in their jobs was the word senior in his title. They were paid the same. They both had the same amount of key on their wrist. Neither was more important than the other. Michelle broke the silence. Want to hear a joke? Tony gave her a sad smile. So, a man's thinking of proposing to his girlfriend. He told me that joke two Fridays ago. Tony was off today. Michelle could sense it. And when he took the flask out of his jacket, she knew for sure. He had two little cups ready to go. She watched as Tony twisted the top and poured them both. Was he making fun of her? To her, this was a dream come true. She'd spent every day at this desk, dying for a drink. But Tony, this was very much against the rules. Tony cared about the rules. What would you do? That was the question he asked. She had no idea what he meant. He took a sip. You know, if you weren't stuck in this room all day. It was a silly question. It's not like they were forced to choose this job. Uh, well, I guess I'd be a famous concert pianist, Michelle stammered. She hadn't said that out loud, ever. She'd given up on music long ago. Tony laughed. She took a sip. Yeah, well, ever since I was four, I've been playing piano, which is about how old Mozart was when he wrote Tinkle Twinkle Little Star. I could play that at four, so I mean, if I hadn't stopped playing, imagine where I'd be. She smirked. Tony laughed. Loudly, too. The kind of laugh that interrupts reality. The two looked at each other while they took a swig. Tony thought about how good Michelle looked drinking whiskey. He hadn't expected that. I was going to be a firefighter, he said. He glared at Michelle. Her eyes made fun. I was five, okay. I had this little fire truck that I could sit on while I pushed it around. And a hat. He let himself swim in the memory for a moment. It wasn't one he had let himself enjoy in a long while. It was great. I wanted to save lives. I wanted to be a badass superhero who swooped in through burning skyscrapers. When you put it that way, it's really not that far from what we do now. Michelle walked over to the game's corner and pulled out Jenga. We have skyscrapers right here. Before long, the two were stacking bricks on top of each other in silence. They'd played this game a thousand times before. So despite their slowly building inebriation, the tower got tall quickly. Each move was made with quiet deliberation. Michelle made faces at Tony when he pulled out his pieces. Tony thought she wanted him to mess up. In truth, she wanted him to laugh. She wanted some form of approval. She looked up to him. He was smart. She wanted to know what it meant when he stared at her because that's all he did when it was her turn. Eventually, they stopped playing, and Tony stopped staring. No one had won, no one had lost. It was 5:56 p.m. when the only thing the screen could see with its big green eye It was an empty room, with a half finished game of Jenga and two empty glasses. Just an empty room with a bundle of clothes in the middle. Just an empty room, somewhere lost in the middle of a nameless desert. A nameless desert with a nameless mountain against the cloudless sky. This desert would never have been a target. The actual doomsday machines were miles and miles away. But, even so, Their work desk was meant to withstand a nuclear war. It could handle a little lovemaking. Not that they were in love. They were just two people who sat next to each other, day after day. Two people. His wife was just another people, a people who had never set foot in that room, with its futuristic computers and its large green screen. His wife had never been 300 feet of concrete beneath the earth. Tony's back was to the screen. The blinking circle of mere scenery. Michelle laid her head on his bare shoulder while she quietly moaned. She was the one who noticed the dot. In the middle of that circle they were paid to watch for hours upon hours every day. There was a dot. She threw Tony on the ground. The two stood up, naked, save for the keys around their wrists. They stared at the screen for a few moments. Tony sighed and slowly walked over to the phone. Michelle sat down on her chair and nervously waited. There was no one on the other line. He put the phone down. As the pair pulled the keys from their wrists, the Jenga tower fell. They did their duty. The manual instructed them to take a breath before they twisted the keys. It told them not to panic as if whoever had written the manual had done this a thousand times before. The case opened. As the world sang its swan song, he let her press the button. That wraps up another Secondhand Stories episode. Thanks for listening along with us. Our next episode is scheduled to come out Thanksgiving morning, so hopefully it'll provide you with something to listen to other than your relatives' opinion about the election. Remember to check out our website, secondhandpodcast.com. You can listen to our past episodes there, or find guidelines on the kinds of stories we're looking for. We're still waiting on our first rating or review on iTunes, too. Could be you. Slow down and listen up with us again.